0: Hi and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 107, we are talking with Jeremy Welch and Jameson Lopp of Casa. But first, let me introduce the sponsors of the podcast. Check out Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. I'm really impressed with the way they have operated consistently with a strong focus on security over the years. They've acted ethically in the space as well under Jesse Powell's leadership. They're one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges and they're consistently rated the best. They've got high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken also have 24-7 support and on the institutional and business solution side, they are providing best-in-class accounting, reconciliation and reporting services for cryptocurrency hedge funds, asset managers and fund administrators. Kraken have an OTC desk for those higher-touch, large block trades. They offer five fiat currencies and also offer margin and futures trading. To learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next up is Unchained Capital. They're doing Bitcoin financial services and their two main products are a two-of-three-keys multi-signature vault and a Bitcoin collateralized loan. So with the vault, Remember, it's difficult to use multi-signature right now, but Unchained Capital have a very easy solution and you can use Trezor or Ledger wallets and you're still maintaining control with your two keys and you can distribute those keys to improve your security a little bit. And we'll also be talking with Drew Bansell from Unchained Capital on the podcast shortly, so keep an eye out for that episode. Remember... Unchained Capital also offer Bitcoin collateralized loans, so you can get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins and incurring that capital gains event, which might be better for you from a tax point of view. So they store that under a dedicated multi-sig address under collaborative custody. So if you want to learn more and sign up, go to the Unchained Capital link in the show notes. So for this episode today, we are carrying on with the Bitcoin Custody Series. And this episode was actually recorded to, together in person at Riga just before the Baltic Honey Badger Conference the first day. So we're speaking with Jeremy Welch, the CEO of Casa, and Jameson Lopp, the CTO of Casa. Now, they've both been on the show previously. Jeremy was on SLP 26 and Jameson was on SLP 43. So keep an eye out for this conversation where we're talking about some of the different security decisions made from CASA's perspective and how they have designed their different services and how they're thinking about security, which they have recently released in the CASA Wealth Security Protocol document. Here is the interview. Jeremy and Jameson, welcome back to the show. It's fun. How are you, man? Good. Great to be here. So uh, we are recording here in Riga, just before the Baltic Honey Badger 2019. So, uh, yeah, look, guys, I wanted to get you guys back on and talk about the CASA security, or CASA wealth protocol, rather, and also just, you know, what's going on with CASA these days. So, uh, maybe, uh, Jeremy, you just want to just give a quick overview on where the
1: company's at and what's going on? Sure, sure, sure. So, uh, just just this past week, um, we... Or, or about a week ago, we, we released this uh, Casa Wealth Security Protocol. Uh, we've, had, we've had some other updates around the, the multisig side and also around SATS app and around um, some updates to the node. Uh, but the, one of the biggest things we've done in the last few weeks is release this document that really expands through the full security model, the features that we chose. We actually chose to go ahead and, and um, elucidate all of the features that we didn't choose to use, too. Um, because there are specific reasons why we did those. And um, this should just help. There's a lot that we usually walk our clients through. Anyone that comes to us, they uh, most of our clients actually know all the, the things that are in the stock um, already, but for the kind of majority of the population, majority of the, the Bitcoin community, um, they're not aware of this and we, we just thought that putting it in a document form making it really easy to access and then also update and as we learn as we work with customers um, you know we'll update this from year to year but it makes it really easy to kind of have a have a, a, a kind of rule set to, to really um, kind of gauge against so
2: yeah I mean this is part of what I think is like the real value add of Casa as a system where we've focused a lot on both the technical and the like user interface design, such that a user could just come into Casa and start using it and basically have this huge benefit of the wealth of knowledge of like 50 pages of, of you know technical decisions that have been made around the security model. But of course, we have people who are securing a large amount of wealth. Uh, within our system, and in many cases, they want to then further dig down into to actually understanding uh, why the system is designed the way that it is. And this, like Jeremy said, basically explains those decisions that we've already had to uh, describe to a lot of our customers over the past couple of years. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, and I've, I've had a chance to read through the document. I thought it was really nicely written. Uh, in the document, you speak through the three alternatives, right? So you've got kind of do-it-yourself, custodial storage, and then other commercial sovereign storage systems. And another thing that struck out to me is also just the comparison with Glacier Protocol. So my previous interview was with Diogo Monaco, the maintainer of Glacier Protocol. uh, And it, it, it strikes me, like, as I was reading the document, the CASA document, it's essentially talking about how there are certain trade-offs that we make using Glacier Protocol. I sure. think one of the key ones is the difficulty of usability and the difficulty of setting up. And I think that's one thing that I view Casa as doing is you guys are really helping with the usability of a high security option. Do
1: you want to discuss about that? Sure. Uh, so, this, you know, everything we built around the Casa Wealth Security Protocol... Um, is in direct response to and is uh, kind of a, an extension of the learnings from Glacier Protocol. Um, so Jacob Lyles, who created the Glacier Protocol, is on the team, helped us write this document, helped us really pull a lot of the resources together whenever we first built this. But we used we actually used Glacier Protocol as a kind of... Um, Basis to to start working from, and a lot of companies have done this in the past. A lot of uh, even exchange companies use Glacier Protocol early on as foundations for their cold storage. Um, and we just saw that that it was you know it, it's rock solid, but it, it's very hard to, to implement and execute and set up. Uh, where we wanted something that you know usability. If we if we go through kind of our Threats, and we've kind of identified these these thirteen core threats. One of them is, um, you know, just just working from like what we call a child or pet attack, or these kind of usability issues of needing to be kind of um, idiot proof, in a sense, right? And Glacier Protocol is just really extensive, uh, and so from that perspective, it does it will always sit. We we actually are. I don't think we've announced that publicly yet that we are kind of co maintaining with Diogo and and uh, um, and those guys with Glacier Protocol. Um, but we, we kind of did the learning from there and then we've tried to extend it and specifically in the direction of where, um, you know, the, the Anchorage guys, and they built a phenomenal product, phenomenal company, and, uh, they're really focused on the enterprise side. We're kind of extending in the side of the consumer and the side of the individual small teams, uh, for kind of maximum security. And we, we talk wealth security instead of just, Bitcoin because Bitcoin is the core focus and that's what we're focused on. But it really is around you know Bitcoin as data and um, and these threats are going to be true of any type of data kind of going forward and kind of personal wealth. But
2: I think that you could potentially describe Casa as seeking to find the optimal practical security solution uh, when it comes to security. Uh, if you're if you're really trying to go for like fully trustless, fully. Um, minimizing the risk of anything going wrong, then you take it to the extreme. You basically can get to the point of, well, you basically need to be writing your own software or at least auditing all the software you're using. And, and then even the more extreme is, well... On the hardware side, you basically need to be like fabricating your own hardware to make sure that nobody has tampered with that. Because I mean, you know, we're we're at the level of complexity these days with the hardware that nobody really knows everything that's going on. And so the the, the question is like, you know, where do you draw the line of? Well, I'm going to assume that everything below this level is working and can be trusted. Uh, and and for us, we're we're kind of raising the line a lot h- higher and saying, well, you know, we are we're going to assume that. Um, you know, if we spread out your your key generation and and management across like multiple different providers, then you're you're lowering the risk to a point that you don't really need to worry about things like supply chain attacks or low level hardware issues.
0: Mm, yeah, and to me, even reading the wealth protocol, wealth security protocol document, it came clear to me there was this concept of defense in depth. Right, it's saying. How do you set up your security in such a way that any individual failure will not compromise you totally that you can afford one failure or before you lose your wealth?
2: You need to have a, a more flexible system because uh, Bitcoin and the sovereignty that it gives to you is also uh, highly inflexible and unforgiving when it comes to mistakes. and And that's why it seems like the bigger risk of loss in these systems is actually due to ignorance and user mistakes as opposed to actual attack and theft.
0: Right, yeah. So there's that idea that you're more likely to screw yourself out of your own coins if you're trying to do multi-sig and you make a mistake with it. I think even Andrew Chow on the previous episode mentioned that he had difficulties trying to get multi-signature with multi-hardware wallets working, and he is himself a quite competent technical developer, so... If It's hard for him. It's you know. It's going to be hard for anyone, right? So uh, there's definitely some components around that. Let's talk a bit about the some of the design principles from the document. So you've got here uh, minimal knowledge.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, there's a lot around minimizing data um, on Casa. It's both the, the the for privacy reasons, but also for can't be evil reasons, right? That's one of our kind of core company principles. Um, but we have a set of system design principles, and anybody, we're, you know, we're we're touching on a few things from the document. Anybody can go download this. You just Google uh, Casa Wealth Security Protocol, or I think it's keys.casa forward slash wealth hyphen security hyphen protocol. I think yep. that's what the URL. But you yeah. can, yeah, you can, you can, you can check this out and and kind of uh, follow along. But we, there's a lot more here. But kind of the high level there is that um, it, uh, Elena has this term um, from that's uh, you know don't collect what you can't protect. And for most companies, most you know, even just from the, the side of people exploiting it for their own purposes, um, this can't be evil principle is what we're talking about there. You need to minimize data. So minimal knowledge just really means that we're going to have minimal knowledge overall of, of data, period. Um, and usability as security is another one. Uh, just thinking about export support. It's not just about even like the software. It is about the integrations of the data, but it's also about working with humans and humans being part of that system too. And having experts, uh, sovereignty as a principle, um, incentive alignment. Again, that kind of aligns with can't be evil. If we can't even attack you or an internal, uh, employee can't even attack you. Um, then that just changes the logic tremendously. If the data is not even there, it changes the logic tremendously versus if a, uh, kind of internal employee, um, is going to have to be tested regularly whether they want to exploit uh, data. So, we, like keeping keeping those system design principles, and then looking at the total number of threats. And we had about thirteen total threats uh, that we consider uh, is, is how we then chose the the kind of selected features.
0: Yeah, and there's also the principle of usability is security. So, did you want to touch on that around how in making it more usable, you actually are making people more secure? So, quick example. I think it's probably fair to say a lot of people have looked at Glacier but have not executed Glacier because it takes a certain level of patience, diligence to execute. And I think that is a key point from Casa the way.
2: Well, and and basically every step that you have to take is a potential mistake. So, you know, the simpler you can make it, uh, the more... When I think of usability, I think of um, when we're building actual software interfaces that humans are using, you are creating a series of paths that a user can go through. And at Casa, we're trying to limit it to paths that include the best practices that include a lot of these uh, security principles, so that what you're really doing is you are trying to throw away as many foot guns as possible. Uh, You know, within the like infinite number of possible decisions that a user could make when they're setting up and and executing their own storage. uh, So many of these paths make it possible for you to uh, screw up in a catastrophic way, and we're basically just trying to, you know, create guardrails that prevent the user from even going off on those paths in the first place,
1: while still maintaining the sovereignty. That was like an important point, and that's why this kind of full system design principles—you have to keep them in balance. Um, and it really is—it really does have to be balanced because there are certain things you can do to improve usability, but that take away control from the end user going fully centralized it's way more usable i mean let's be frank it's just you know coinbase and just throwing someone a regular login is way more usable on the surface uh but it immediately takes away sovereignty immediately takes away control it immediately creates a can't be evil situation to where you know someone could take coins um, and so doing that balance of making sure it's usable while at the ac- absolute extreme that we can, while also maintaining that sovereignty is really important while minimizing data. And we've, we've even gone as far even from the legal structure of the company. The, uh, we have this uh, open data policy our privacy policy. We kind of wrote a totally new type of privacy policy. Um, and, uh, and that's open source. Other companies can copy that. But we're trying to go through kind of every step of the way to build up this stack uh, in terms of the design of the overall system, and the incentives even for the internal employees to, again, uh, address these 13 threats. Let's talk a little
0: bit about some of the, I guess, what are some of the big threats in your mind? What were some of the ones that are most obvious uh, for the user? So, uh, I guess, just off the yeah, off the list here, there's a few. Sim hijacking, that's a big one lately. Uh supply chain attack that's something where you know a lot of people are concerned about that and trying to have different hardware wallets and different uh, software that they're working with Um, data credential loss uh, or even uh, being attacked on your the platform that you're using did you have any that you wanted to kind of highlight
2: well I mean I think that of the ones that are listed you know the, the most common one is just simple data loss and so that's why we believe having you know a geographically distributed set of hardware devices that are easy for the user to visualize and think about, you know, how are these actually uh, distributed? That gives you a level of redundancy and robustness that is going to exceed you know ninety nine percent of other people who are just keeping all their keys in one place.
0: Right, I, and I suppose let's just for. I think most listeners might have, you know, heard the earlier episodes, but just for the, in case they haven't, the basic overview, you've got the the silver and gold, which is the two of three basic multi-sig, and my understanding there is they have one hardware wallet, and they've got one key on their phone, and then one key is the CASA recovery key in that model. Mm-hmm. And then taking it up a notch to the, uh, is it platinum and diamond, and that is the $1,800 level and the $5,000 level, they that is a three of five setup. We have three hardware wallets in that model. There is one key held on the user's mobile phone and the fifth key is held by, it's the CASA recovery key. Uh, so I guess let's just talk to maybe the two of three model. I think one concern I've heard from Bitcoiners is, is that, oh, hang on. Does Casa have two of my three key? Two of the three keys. How how can I be sure
2: that I hold you know, two of three? Well, you can be sure that you hold two of three. We we also have uh export functionality uh on the mobile key. Um I suppose however it's impossible to prove that Casa doesn't have uh the mobile key. Uh that is one thing that you know, you'd have to quote unquote trust us on, right. and so you know this is another good reason of why you know there are trade offs here. Um, you know we do intend to add ability to have two different hardware devices, so you could then have a greater assurance that you have two of the keys, and there is no way Casa could have two of the three. Um, but right now, uh, that assurance is best provided by the the three of five model.
1: Okay. And we we kind of rolled this out intentionally um, from the three of five where we were able to uh, build up a user base and work directly with clients. We have direct client relationships. It is kind of like a private banking relationship. We learn a lot from client preferences. We've done a tremendous amount of testing before we rolled it out to people publicly, but then we also learned a ton from even just the first several months. And uh, we're now um, uh, over a year of being public. It's I guess it's almost like 1.5 Years of of being public, um, and all of that that wealth of knowledge, we've kind of <clears throat> scaled up. We always intended to to scale, uh, and we actually have a, a single key, a mobile key as well. Um, that's that uh, is just again, it's it's a single key. It's on the phone. That's actually used in a. It's the same key that's shared with our Sats app. So uh, if you want Sats app, is just really fast spending, and then Keymaster is the kind of full multisig. Um, But even the way we rolled that out is we, again, started with the three of five most premium multi-sig, and then we slowly rolled out, we had two of three, we had the single key, slowly rolled those out. Uh, We rolled out the two of three specifically to gold customers first um, to make sure that that was usable. We also, you know, we mentioned before the multi-location, multi-device, multi-sig model. The reason around that, again, is in terms of these 13 threats, that model is what mitigates those threats the best. And the there's a weird uh, trade-off um, where with the mobile device, if you're going to use a mobile device, um, from the principle of the usability side, uh, you actually want to maximize usage as soon as you decide to even use it um, because of the fact that you can also maximize kind of usability. Um, now, that mobile device as a single device is your phone is potentially connected to to, uh, the internet. Uh, We do have customers that choose to keep that off at all times, never really connect to the internet. And that effectively does act similarly to a hardware wallet. Um, But it's effectively just a really fancy hardware wallet. Um, But we, you know, for most people, they keep it as a regular key and people have asked us about that question too. And what, what that comes down to is that um, you know, it's also true that Apple or Google and most, you know, it's either a Google phone or an Apple phone, uh, that people are using um, you know they could even try to exploit that key and, and as soon as you put that key on the platform, you want to maximize the features that are available there so we've done that now on the phone and for the two of three it's specifically designed it's not designed to hold millions of dollars. Uh, it is designed to hold somewhere between say a thousand dollars and around a hundred thousand. sometimes less. We do have people that you know put even a little less than a hundred thousand dollars on the three of five, right So we have there's a range of what people are comfortable with. but um, it is designed to, to be an entry level version of like just getting you know, getting started with multi-sig. That's why we decided, hey, let's you know we will we will use the um, uh, mobile key and then one hardware wallet. And for most people that had started using this, they'd never used multisig before, so it was already a learning experience. We had a lot of people that upgraded immediately after, and they were like, "Oh yeah, I get it now. Why there need to be multiple keys?" Um, we will be rolling out a, a version that does have the two hardware wallets, but we wanted heavy testing around just that that single version first before we before we do that. But you know, these are these are great questions, and uh, yeah. the community's been is always phenomenal about about asking and figuring out these these kind of uh, nooks and crannies of questions. And again, that's why we released this document is that there's a lot more even beyond some of these questions that, that customers are asking. And so we just want to uh, kind of constantly put these forward and bring these for ourselves and have that level of transparency. And so even as we're adding more features, we expect to get a lot more of these questions.
0: Yeah, sure. And I think it might be good just for the listeners who are not familiar just to understand what is the way the mechanism works so they might be thinking oh do I need to bring all three keys into one place at one time but actually it's more like you individually do the signatures do you want to just talk through the process
2: yeah so you know when you're creating a transaction with the keymaster app actually initializing, is like any other transaction, you can scan a QR code, you can manually input data. But uh, basically, you you set those initial details of the amount and and the output destination. And then you'll apply your initial signature there with the key that's on the device. And, um, you know, most likely, well, you're using either your know, biometric or face ID or, or pin input to basically unlock the uh, The mobile device so that you can access uh, the key which we keep secured uh, via the secure hardware elements that are on the uh, phone. And so then what you have is a partially signed Mm -hmm. transaction. It's not valid for broadcasting on the Bitcoin network. You then have to go figure out, uh, you know, what other devices do I want to use to add a sufficient number of signatures that it becomes valid. And, uh, and essentially you just, you know, tap within the app on the device you want to use and you say, Hey, I want to add another signature from here. Well then, you know, generate, uh, a short lived, uh, unique link that you can use to essentially go, find that device wherever it is plug it into a laptop click on the link add the signature and then continue that process until everything is done and of course it can get more complicated if you've lost de- devices and need to have uh, help from Casa uh, that that enters into a different you know logical like recovery process but uh, under normal circumstances, you're basically just going to be traveling around, uh, getting enough hardware devices that you can reach that threshold. and. The you know the other thing about making this a really usable system is that we also have health checks available. We have the ability for the user to essentially do key rotations and swap out devices that get lost or broken or compromised without even having to reach out to Casa for help. It's just a simple wizard that you can walk through within the app.
1: And this ties into uh, you know even more of a reason to use the mobile device um, is that we realize that people people carry their mobile devices with them everywhere and out of any, you know, arguably sometimes even more than a a birth certificate or a social security card or, you know, government ID, people keep track of their phones always on their person. Um, and whether it's candy crush data or, uh, some, you know, maybe it's a favorite photo or something there, there are valuables, data valuables that are already on those phones and people treat them, uh, very personally. Um, and they, they, they protect those devices, Um, and, and, and from that side, you know, people usually have it on them. And so if, If they're traveling from one location, say it's a home to an office or to a, this, you know, third location that could be even in a different city, they're going to have their phone on them. They're going to use that as a communications tool. And so using that as the guide tool to be totally asynchronous and sign, you could go, you could sign kind of the, 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 first one on one day, go two or three days later if you wanted to in a totally different city and signing. And then you've, you've maintained the distance between those two signings um and within that time span that also means an attacker has to maintain that distance uh it is true that an attacker could hold you at gunpoint or do something um uh, more aggressive but even in that case they're still going to have to trend you know uh, go go these distances and the more time that's you know we're just raising the bar there uh the more time that's required to go these distances and um, uh, the more people, the more places you have to go, the higher likelihood that someone gets caught, someone gets noticed, you could you know whether it's um, uh, actually kind of saying safe words and we even have like that's part of our service around this is we even have safe words and specific process and emergency lockdown buttons and all these other features that are built in. But it comes to that usability of having the asynchronous nature where you can go different places, but having that usability where you're always kind of seeing the command center kind of on the on the phone.
0: Yeah, I think that's the other thing as well, that maybe might not be apparent that uh, a customer can sign up in a more pseudonymous way.
2: Can you talk to that? Sure. So, you know, at Casa, we are not a, a bank or a financial institution. We're a software service provider. Um within the context of actually managing keys, CASA only has ever has one out of N of your key set. And, and those keys are always kept completely offline and requires, uh, you know, manual human uh, recovery process to be gone through, usually a process that take can take multiple days. Uh, this is also, you know, configurable by each user and, and how they want that to be done on the CASA side. But um, the... Uh, the, the general gist of it is that uh, CASA is, is going to be helping the user help themselves is, is the best way that I know how to put it. Uh, the, the downside to this is that you know, whenever you're into a situation where you are not taking the time or don't have the level of knowledge that you can do everything all by yourself without asking anyone for help, obviously, that's going to be the best privacy. But if you want to save time, if you want to have expert guidance, then there has to be some sort of communication, there has to be at least some sort of, you know, pseudonymous email address or other communication uh, endpoint for us to, to have back and forth. So while we are not a financial institution. We don't do AML KYC. We don't actually care about your government identity. Uh, we do need to have some way to communicate with you in case something goes wrong. You know, if, like Jeremy said, if you hit the emergency lockdown and we basically refuse to to allow any signatures to be added for anything, then you'll need to go through a process uh, in order for us to unfreeze the account or if you if you lose a sufficient number of devices that you need Casa to, to dig uh, the cold storage key out and, and sign it you'll need to go through additional processes because at that point uh, if we believe that you may have been compromised you know we need to ask for some other you know non-identifying questions but but some sort of authentication questions whether it's you know things that you know special phrases or words uh, or even you know photos of, of Either yourself or objects, or you know, it's basically any type of unique identifiers that that you are comfortable with using. That would be difficult, if not impossible, for an attacker to replicate.
1: And our our lawyers, I'll I'll throw out there that you know a lot of times, uh, especially around products, you don't really you don't really hear that. Oh, the lawyers did a really great job of innovating here, but we really did uh, have a phenomenal amount of help from from Gunderson and a few other lawyers, um, law firms. That really helped us. And we spent a lot of money thinking through what what's the minimal ad- amount of data that we can capture that would still be serviceable, uh, still be, uh, you know, it would still match up with any legal requirements in terms of a terms of service and our ability to provide a service, but without needing additional data that could become potentially exploitable. Um, and from that end, you know, we do we do have a photo verification feature, but you could take a photo of a cup or something else. Right. That you're that you're going to use as, hey, like it's still me. You don't have to take a photo of yourself. Um, all those photos are, are locked down and are in, you know, internally, we have a ton of uh, this is totally separate. But we have a ton of practices around key signing, uh, code signing, commit signing. Um, but we also uh, locked down those photos and the data informa- or the information on the customers is also all encrypted separately. Um, and and so even accessing that information is really hard internally from the limited information that we have. Uh, but we we did kind of reach this. And that's why we published the open data policy, um, because we reached this kind of what we found to be a totally new level of what could be possible as a company to operate and still respect that sovereignty uh, and, and, and kind of respect the privacy of the end user.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great focus. I think um, the next question is something that most people don't want to think about, but it's something we do have to think about. It's inheritance planning. It's many people who are Bitcoiners, they, irrationally, we just think, hey, I'm going to live forever. But how is Casa thinking about that in terms of passing it on for that person's family or heirs.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's actually an entirely separate project. I think we briefly touch on it here, but um, you know, we're we're eventually going to be having probably a very similar document like like the well security protocol, except that it is specific to inheritance. I mean, uh, we,
1: we do have, I mean, it's like, we, we haven't, we haven't talked it. about this publicly uh, yet. And that's actually the reason why we even, why we approached Jacob in the first place was not actually directly around our protocol, but we were like, look, like, you know, you've built Glacier Protocol, he was an old friend of mine, and we've learned a ton from this. Um, you know, we've been thinking about inheritance a lot. So we do have an inheritance protocol that we have not really announced publicly. I guess it's out there now, uh, uh, but we do have an inheritance protocol, and similar to the document that you see here, we are mapping this out and we've been testing it. And w- y- you know, you can dive into to more of the details, but I, you know, I guess we should
2: just if we're going to address the question, we should probably just talk about it, right. Straight I mean, up that we have a, this. It's a similar uh, type of. Of of history, where you know we've been working with clients to best understand what their needs are, and you know how we can leverage the uh, traditional inheritance processes to be more compatible with these new you know technologically sophisticated um, sovereign setups. And so the I guess the ultimate conflict between having this ultimate you know self sovereign setup where you're the only one who has access to it is that, You're the only one who has access to it. And so uh, you need to figure out a way that you can have a set of trusted people that you believe will not all collude against you to be able to access your funds if, for whatever reason, you become incapacitated.
1: And we actually do include this as one of the 13 threats is inheritance failure. Uh, We view that Mm -hmm. as a threat that you build up this wealth and then it just easily stolen at the end of your life um, that's a problem or that it's totally lost at the end of your life. There is, there are several unfortunate circumstances. I think Matthew Mellon is probably the the largest, I think that's known. I think that was a, that was, I don't think that was in Bitcoin. It was in something else, but it was something like $500 million. It was lost. Um, so this is starting to become a real issue. I mean, and and we think of it, it does go beyond right now. It's, we are focused on Bitcoin, but this is some, at some point, this is even going to be, the legal documents that you have, and the photos that you have, and the, all these other, you know, digital family heirlooms that you have, um, will also be passed down in a similar way. So it is, it is a really big problem. There's a lot of people doing great work here. Pamela Morgan's been doing great work here. A lot of people, um, and we've we've tried to take a kind of unique tack in both having our full service and our the full protocol that we already have. Uh, but then also all the resources that we've already spent around lawyers, talking to those same lawyers, working with independent customer lawyers, with the state attorneys. We've been doing this for, it's probably been, what, six, six eight months? Yeah, so
2: you know this gets a lot more complicated, um, A, because you have jurisdictional differences, right, right, and right. B, because everybody has a different family, a different individual personal setup. And this is why we've been going a lot slower on this side where we've been trying to figure out, you know, how do we make it customizable for people while still trying to, like I said, minimize those foot gun paths. It it gets uh, more difficult to to keep people within, uh, you know, well-vetted guidance when there is a wider, you know, array of possibilities and decisions that have to be made.
1: And a lot of times your inheritors, they may not even want to keep the Bitcoin, right? And who are you to actually kind of choose for them? If we're talking about individual sovereignty, who are you to infringe on their sovereignty and their choice? Um, you know, that would be, I think in all of our minds, it would be a very unfortunate case, just depending on timing and, uh, what different, different, a uh, we, you know, everybody pretty much on the team and, talking about hyper bitcoinization and all this stuff and just like just changes in Bitcoin price. It's usually just so you know one or two days out of the year that have the, the widest swings. And so the timing could just be horrendous if someone's just like, oh, I'm not even gonna think about this. And then five days later it changes. But you do still in those cases you know, losing family relationships, losing like these things are more valuable than wealth and are arguably scarcer than even the 21 million Bitcoin. And so really trying to be very careful about those and, and thinking about the inheritors and thinking about the, you know, if they want to pass them down, if they want to keep them. Um, they, most of them, it, it's one thing to, to educate a Bitcoiner on keys and multisig; It's an entirely different thing to educate an inheritor on all of this stuff. And even an state attorney, So we've been mapping all of that out and really thinking through the kind of onboarding process from both the legal side, the customer side, uh, the direct customer side, the uh, inheritor's side, um, and then also even thinking about the regulatory side and how uh, you can kind of minimize data, minimize trust, but also satisfy because there are a lot of requirements when inheritors kind of pass wealth, and this is the different jurisdictional side. So it, I think it'll be a little while longer before we go really public with everything there, but you can expect a similar amount of detail. We started, we actually decided to push out this cost of wealth security protocol because we said, hey, like the similar level of detail that we're going through on the inheritance side, we could just address the core multi-sig and then these these two documents would really fit well together.
0: Fantastic. Uh, and just while we're you know still on the topic of security as well, I, I think we, we definitely want to also cover off the idea of being seedless. So that is something that's probably a little alien to uh, many Bitcoiners because the typical setup that they're thinking is, oh, I've got my hardware wallet and I've got my 24-word seed. What's the difference with Casa and why these, why
2: seedless? Sure. So anyone who has set up a hardware wallet before is familiar with that that first step where it gives you your 12 or 24-word backup seed phrase. And what we really decided was that when you get through that process, the, the hardware device basically says, okay, you know, write this down and keep it in a safe place. And that there's this entire mountain of knowledge, you know, hidden under that simple word, you know, keep it in a safe place is that, you know, like we've been saying basically the, the entire time now, we're trying to... Uh, raise up the bar uh, higher so that the users don't have to think about all of the security considerations um, of of, managing these private keys. And, And essentially, the seed phrase is all of the keys to the kingdom. So if the user has to manage the seed phrase and think about physical attacks and, and physical loss and all of that, then that just becomes another like exponential blow up in the number of decisions that the user has to make. And by just... Completely throwing the seed phrase out the window and leaving it, you know, secured in hardware devices and, and uh, via secure enclave on a, a mobile device. Um, it just makes it a lot easier for us to reason about the security model. And since when we're thinking through the security model, we don't want to have to trust the user uh and, and the various decisions that they've made, um, that once again, it just it narrows down the the, the possibilities and the foot guns, really. So um, it's it is an alien thing for people who have been in the space for a while. We hope that it becomes a more common thing. Um, but, you know, it's also an alien thing to. Have a flexible multi-sig setup that is easy to do key rotations, and that's that's the main reason with, that we believe that seedless is okay if you pair it with a way to flexibly uh, uh, replace, you know, lost seeds. And so we wrote,
1: er, and with full hardware wallets, full support. I mean, that's one reason why this is an entire system. It's not just about the software. Uh, even the incentive system around a kind of yearly fee for us as a company and providing a level of service, it's all designed around this kind of long-term alignment between customer and company. And we do a lot of things that, again, we out, we outline here in the document, but um, we do maintain extra stock of hardware wallets. We don't want to be in a case to where someone's, you can go order anytime from any other company or just buy one off of a store and rotate that in and it works perfectly fine. But we also maintain stock just in case someone, they might be traveling, they might be in an international country to where they can can't typically get access. And we now have global logistics expertise. We have customers in over 60 countries, and we've dealt with shipping, a crazy shipping problem pretty much everywhere around the world now. And um, and so we now have that access to get you a device if something fails and you need to kind of rotate something in. We've built out a, a full wallet sweep feature. You can go UTXO by UTXO, very detailed, really fast wallet sweeps. And it's the combination of that with the hardware wallet, uh, ease of use with the mobile key, with ev- or, and and everything kind of built together that makes this a manageable, fast response system. Um, but it just really shifts the model uh, to two kind of framings that I use. I Thinking about this is that if you think about you know, uh, um, there's nothing there's nothing bad inherently bad about seed phrases that the the reason they were designed in the first place is because you were dealing with what was effectively kind of a one of two system where you had the hardware wallet and then you had the seed phrase but you only had one device and it was a one of one system right Um, and by shifting to multi-sig you end up in a situation to where you would have five total keys and five total seed phrases and then you're protecting 10 total items and because you have this this ability to it's a three of five. So if you lose one key, it's okay, you can just rotate and sign with the other keys. That's a that's something that you didn't have. That's a feature that you didn't have in a case of like a single hardware wallet. Um, so that's where we adapted this. But the the, the trade off there is that you then have to shift from being a, okay, we're going to protect Everything that's here right now and just r- restore you to the exact same state. You have to shift the design of the system to being something that re- re- that responds rapidly, readapts rapidly. Um, and we actually, again, we noticed that out of actually doing direct customer uh, interaction and, um, and research because we looked at when people were actually recovering single treasures or ledgers, what they would do is so, say they lost a the device. They would lose the device. Um, they would go find their seed phrase. They'd buy a uh, new device. Um, they would reload the seed phrase, then they would immediately have a second device that they sent funds to. And so there's you know there's eight steps there to get to that second device to send funds to the second device, and then they'd wipe the old device. So they're already doing this kind of key rotation process they're just not thinking about it and we can simplify that down from about eight or nine steps into just three to where it's okay one key's lost okay we're not going to worry about that one anymore just rotate in a new key send funds so it, it drops it down to three and although it's it is a little scary for people that have only used a single key for a long time overall it's just much faster yeah so i guess i might
0: just talk through that just for the listeners who might not be clear what's going on there so for example sake the person is using a three or five, and they believe that one of the keys has been you know tampered with or lost or whatever so you you would then have to say that key is now gone and now essentially what you would be doing then is spending out of the remaining set into the new uh, f- five keys set, which now has a new hardware wallet instead of that one that has been stolen or lost or tampered et etc right.
2: Yeah, the the new uh, three out of five set would still have four of the same, uh, you know, public key sets as the previous, and you're just rotating out that one that has been compromised.
1: But it becomes a totally fresh set of addresses, totally new set of addresses, because even with it, just that one key different, um, you, you're in a totally different domain in terms of your address set and. And your funds, uh, and so you're back to kind of full level of safety. And I, and I do want to mention that we, again, we rejected, there's a bunch of features, different key schemes that we ended up rejecting. And this is actually one of the reasons why around just kind of general key sharding that we did reject some of that is that you lose a lot of flexibility around your recoverability, your ability to rotate, um, in a case to where you've given out a bunch of different key shards, and then you decide, oh, wait a second, I actually need to rotate this. Then you have to go back and give out a bunch more key shards. Where if you've given out, you know, for you, you have a lawyer, or you have a friend, or someone else, you've given out one hardware wallet to them. Um, you could rotate your other sets of keys, and that person could still hold the same device. Uh, and they don't have to change a thing, right? And, but you're in a totally new address set, you're able to move the funds, and that person doesn't have to do anything. So um, it's
2: just a more flexible system. Way
1: more flexible. And you, you, there's just a lot you can do. It doesn't mean, again, key sharding, it can be great. And even within the context of a full multi-sig, it can be great. Um, and we've we've thought about some different implementations of maybe taking one key out of your multisig and doing some key sharding. But I think that key sharding as a whole, the other the other big weakness there that a lot of people haven't really factored in is that if your key is breached before you do the key sharding. So if there's a supply chain attack or there's any of the kind of 13 attacks that we've listed, if that key is somehow discovered, uh, you know, you may be in a case to where it's 10 years down the line. Everything's key charted. You never knew that it was ever compromised. But that that one time, it was compromised. Um, and then 10 years down the line, and doesn't matter. You, like know, you were you're owned from the beginning. Yeah, you were owned from the beginning. You didn't even know it. And you went to all this work where it's, as soon as you do multi-sig and as soon as you do five fresh key creations, uh, you know you've, it just completely eliminated that possibility. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so I guess one of the things there is with if somebody wants to do Shamir's secret sharing and they split it into three or five shards, let's say now it becomes a lot more difficult for them to change after the fact. Right. right? right. So that's one of the, I guess that's one of the things you're getting out there as right. well. So let's say I had, you know, four friends and I gave each of them a shard, but then later maybe I'm not friends with one of those guys anymore. I fall out with him. I still got to find a way to like rotate out of that set. And I would now have to go to each of those friends to give them each a new piece Whereas right. in a Casa model, I suppose it's like you've got different hardware wallets, and you're managing it through that. And in doing so, you could even just completely disregard what you could, again, uh, disregard one of those hardware keys and rotate in a new key into that set. And now you're kind of you're good.
1: Yeah, you could reject an individual one key and replace just that person's key. Where if you're talking about a full key sharded set, you would if you were trying to do the same thing from just a key sharded setup, you'd have to go actually replace everybody else's too. Yeah. So it just it gives you a lot more flexibility. Um, and we are you know, we, we have more team base features that are basically around we have we have a lot of customers that are either family offices or they're just families and it's a spouse or you know to a brother and a sister or um, even a small team and we're building more kind of linkages between how people interact with those keys and how they can view the different actions that are happening reminders there's a ton to build out there and then again that ties directly into the inheritance side uh, and just thinking through this this full security model fantastic let's talk a little bit
0: about uh sovereign recovery so i understand with casa there is the sovereign recovery process which is essentially it's an email and you have i think is it the x pubs and essentially the uh the redeem scripts and so on and you would the, the user at this point would pick up electrum and then they would you know bring their hardware wallets together and you know spend into their own set can you talk to that process a little bit
2: right so you know, in order to spend out of three or five, obviously, you have to have three of the sets of private keys. But the thing that I think a lot of people might not know is that you have to have all of the public uh, key sets. So uh, when you initially create a wallet, uh, or whenever you uh, need this information, if you, you know, lose it uh, at any time, you can export it again from the Keymaster app will essentially give you step-by-step guide to use open source software along with all of the public keys so that then all you have to do is, uh, you know, recreate your wallet and then plug in, you know, one device at a time and, and go through a similar type of process to basically sweep all of those funds and then send it to whatever new setup you want. And, um, it's it's fairly standard actually. If you go to walletsrecovery.org, um, then we have a, a copy of the process on there. We're using completely standard uh, multisig redeem script, so there's nothing special required there. All you really need to know are your specific uh, uh, extended public keys and then the uh, derivation scheme that we use.
1: And we don't uh, one one note again, just kind of in the level of detail in that email. We assume that your email could be totally pwned, compromised. Um, and so there are only two pub keys that are actually sent in the email that has the full instruction set. And then the others you recover either directly from your devices or, uh, within the app. Um, but we were really trying to build even that process out. Someone could attack you from that side. So we've done that very piecemeal and very carefully too, but you always have full control. So if, you know, if Casa disappears, if, um, if somehow there's, you know, internet access is limited in your country. Um, you know, there, there are tons of scenarios and even within these extreme scenarios, you still have full control, um, but you also get that usability of having a full service, full software suite, full kind of people behind you and when, when things are going well. Fantastic. I think th-
0: there's probably just two key things, I think, and these are, again, trade-offs that are being made for to make it easy for the user. But I think just for the listeners, just to make sure they're aware, I guess, they should be aware that one, that, you know, the privacy aspect, they are doxing their coins to Casa. That's probably the main, like probably one of the big trade-offs that they have to consider. They've got to, Obviously, entering into it with open eyes because they're getting the additional security of multi-signature. And I think the other one, at a more kind of subtle level, is this idea of if you run your own node, you're defending the, your chosen rule set. And theoretically, if some, if a company, if you're with a company and that company decides to go with SegWit2x and so on, which chain, which fork would you be on? So Some of those questions as well. Uh, but I think those would be, you know, a trade-off that the user thinks about in in order to get okay the additional multi-signature and the kind of guidance through the process. Would that be sort of a fair summary?
2: Sure, at the moment. Uh, and of course, people are probably familiar with the fact that we also sell the Kasa node. Now, one of the things that we're doing over time is continuing to integrate all of our products and services together more and more. And you know, it's definitely a desire we've had demand for for a while and that we've wanted to do in the long term is to Offload m- as much of the coordination and trust away from the CASA servers and actually onto the CASA node. So, you know, I think it's only going to be a matter of time um, before you're able to connect uh, Keymaster to your CASA node, much in the way that you can connect Satsap to your CASA node right now. Though that's, uh, you know, Satsap is going through LND, which is talking to to Bitcoin Core, uh, whereas on the Keymaster side, it would be more uh, talking directly to Bitcoin Core basically to do. Do the, the verification of uh, receipts of transactions
1: from the from the privacy aspect because this is a really interesting point. There are there are multiple reasons to want to maintain privacy. Um, definitely the biggest one is just as a pure attack vector. Um, the second one is you know just keeping people out of your shit and trying to block transactions, trying to block. And that's for for anybody that's that's uh, kind of used to KYC AML. Loss a day, you can't even go spend if you want to. There are numerous cases where people just wanted to go spend ten, twenty thousand dollars on buying a new product or a car or a house or whatever, and they could barely. You know, they could. It took them a while to get the money out. Even when they got it out, um, they were still getting hounded for what are you using this for? And um, you know, majority of people out there in the world are good. There are some criminals. There are even more criminals that use cash than use Bitcoin. Um, but privacy is important for people. It's important and. Um, and the way we think about it, again, we've minimized the total amount of data. Um, now, on the flip side of that, though, on the flip side of like the uh, us optimizing for privacy, once you kind of come in the door, um, we we do think that there will be a world to where you will you will be able to assume that every you know you go into a wealthy neighborhood, middle class neighborhood, uh, even some poor neighborhoods, right? It doesn't matter. Your people are going to assume that every house in that neighborhood, regardless of socioeconomic status has some Bitcoin In the same way that today you would go to any house and any attacker is going to think, Oh man, there's, you know, there's high end TVs probably in these houses. There's, there might be jewelry, there might be, you know, family heirlooms there. There's wealth in every one of these houses. We're going to reach a, a state. We, we think pretty soon within five or 10 years to where that's just the case. Um, and so it, you, I, I think that the, the conversation around privacy, is going to be something more around um, you are going to selectively disclose parts, not everything. And that, that ability to selectively disclose certain portions, some people may feel comfortable actually using their real name and their real email address. Other people want to use you know, not use that. Um, we don't again require KYC or, or uh driver's license or anything else. So you do have that flexibility, but we are gonna get to a world to where people, some people will do more or less, but that control is gonna be important, but almost everybody will have something. And so this idea that of just totally hiding out um, and no one ever knowing that you have Bitcoin is gonna become harder and harder because everyone's just gonna have Bitcoin. It's just a question of kind of how much. So we, I, I, I described that whole process because when we were initially thinking about designing the multi-sig and key master and the service. Um, we we thought through we're like, okay, if we get five, 10 years out, what's this going to look like? And a private banking service is going to give you all the control. You have all the data control. You make the data choices that are right for you. But for certain people, it will be kind of common for some things to be there. And if you want to have a level of service to where you do have a kind of private banking level, you get you can pick up the phone anytime. You can get engineering support. You can get uh, direct you know, question support on, you know, this this one cousin or one brother that you know is terrible technically, and you want some extra recommendations on how to use. You know, even you don't even have to say the name of the brother, but there will be certain amounts of information that are shared, and um, just trying to create the flexibility for that to be there while uh, while the customers still have control of their data or control of that in choice. Um, but yeah, so that's the world that we're trying, that we're thinking where where things will go. And, I, and we've tried to back into how do we give them that, you know, as much flexibility as possible while still maintaining privacy, but kind of giving that that choice there.
0: Uh, in terms of roadmap, uh, I think, uh, you know, the cold card is a crowd favorite. So, uh, and I do know, uh, there's been testing on that. So, you are in planning to in- include that as a potential as part of the customer's set as well? Yes. Yeah,
2: definitely. Uh, you know, right now we have Ledger and treasure support, um, and so people will have like uh, either one ledger and two treasures or two treasure or two ledgers, and one treasure, you know, uh, basically a mix of the different products there. But of course it would be even better if it was like one ledger, one treasure, one cold card.
1: And we think that, it's, that again, kind of as we've planned out, uh, we do think there's going to be a world where there's gonna be 20 different manufacturers, um, yeah, you know, there are going to be some many, many smaller manufacturers, many medium sized manufacturers. I think that we're going to get to a world where Samsung and Sony and all these kind of name brand manufacturers are going to have key signing devices. So we're, we're building for that and, you know, getting partially signed Bitcoin transaction support into the system, being able to fully support uh, cold card is a priority. We're working on that really hard and we'll be releasing news around that as soon as, uh, as uh, you know, relatively soon. Um, but that is a big, big request. Uh, there's more integration. So between the node and between Keymaster, um, that we'll will, will do a lot of testing there. Um, before that, I think that we will have more news around the inheritance side. If people have questions on that or anything else, you can just email membership at team.casa and we can touch on any kind of questions around where things are going. But there's, there's even more stuff around um, so we, we do have in the document, we kind of have a list of remaining attack vectors that we are trying to uh, work around. And we do have mitigations around those. But there's, there's additional work even around address spoofing um, that we've even one of the reasons why we use mobile keys is it's actually it is harder to do address spoofing. We actually need to rederive derive on uh, both the, the end client and on the server side. Um, it's still possible, but it's, it's, it's definitely minimized. Um, but there's even more work we can do in simplifying and making it easier to validate addresses across both CASA system and across, say, your sovereign recovery setup or another system just before you're even transferring funds on. Um, and there's 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 a ton of work to do. But I think that the way we think about this well security protocol document is it kind of lays out um, the both the kind of uh, uh, remaining attack vectors that we can continue to address and the areas for work, other features that we can add in. And then also, you know, we've got taproot and Schnorr, and um that's going to make things easier too so we'll be we're working towards uh supporting this
0: uh when it comes to some of these uh coming technologies as well i think uh, the document mentions um some ideas around what uh could be done with that i'm just trying to find that now Oh yeah, so that's that's the one I was keen to ask about. Uh, just multi-signature transactions on the blockchain, looking like standard transactions with Schnorr t- with Schnorr signatures as well. So that's another thing right now where currently multi-signature transactions are distinguishable on the blockchain. Yep. Um, but hopefully, it sort of gets to that point where it, it everything starts to look the same, and then it's a bit more.
1: Uh, and you can analyze traffic even by you know number of keys, setup of keys. Um, one one thing that even one reason why we we mapped out this kind of rollout of three of five and then two of three and then even uh single signature is that you we actually provide some cover in a sense by having more multi-sig transactions overall we actually provide some cover for larger balances or larger customers and uh the more people that are using multi-sig the more uh, exposure you have from a from a code perspective and, and um even from a support perspective of, of uh, it, it, there's a there's a lot that comes from more usage and so i think that just like broadening that market is actually an important point around this this specific topic
0: all right so look uh, is there anything else you guys uh, wanted to bring up i think we've kind of spoken through a lot of different uh, points so uh uh yeah if you've got anything anything else that you wanted to bring up around uh, where Perhaps, perhaps just where kind of Bitcoin custody is going over the next few years. What does it what does it look like in your in your mind?
2: Well, I mean, I think unfortunately a lot of Bitcoin custody is going to be you know institutionalized uh, custody with trusted, regulated third parties, and um, <laughs> you know yeah. we we kind of see ourselves as you know fighting against that tide. Uh, you know, it's going to be difficult to do. Um, I think just a lot of the the big money, you know, from traditional finance and in investments uh, is going to end up going with that model because that's what they're used to or possibly even legally required to do. But um, this is why we have focused on the individuals more though, because there isn't really anything like that in the, the traditional uh, financial world. We believe there's a much larger gap where, um, You know, custody with with trusted third parties is a fairly well understood thing uh, that, you know, people have been doing that for for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Uh, But trying to take a lot of those principles and make them, you know, usable by the average person who isn't eating and breathing custody day in and day out uh, is, I think, the really challenging thing where there's a lot of value to be gained.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that um, you can think of it as uh, you know historically, security and privacy have really almost been like a luxury good, in the sense that there have you know there have been titans of industry who owned their own banks, and uh, or there have been uh, queens and kings who had their stash of, of of both food and cash and gold, and you know uh, it, there have always been these kind of having that level of of access, privacy, wealth. Um, you, you, it was a select few that had that level of control. And what we're specifically trying to do, we know that there are going to be institutions that come in and there are going to be institutional products. And, you know, we've laid out the, the attack vectors that even those institutional products will face. Uh, and some of those will be tested and will fail. And we do believe that a lot of individuals will shift most of their personal wealth into doing some kind of multi-sig or some kind of self-controlled keys because of this, um, on the long term, but uh to get there, we have to again if that core problem is that privacy and security are have historically been a luxury good and it's been problematic on or or just hard to do, we have to make it easier. And that's what we've set out to do is is bring that level of wealth control um and that level of security and privacy to anyone at any cost. And that goes all the way down. I mean we're gonna go as far as we can to bring the cost of running multi-sig service um, and the options around that as low as possible um, so that we can get it to really anyone in the world. And then there will just be differing tiers based on kind of how much wealth you're storing and the security trade-offs around that.
0: Fantastic. Well, look, I think that's going to do it for this one. How about you guys uh, tell my listeners where can they find you? Obviously, I'll put the links in the show notes, but it's nice to just uh, speak out the links as well.
2: I'm often on Twitter with the handle LOP, L O P P. Uh, you can also find me and a ton of educational resources about Bitcoin at LOP.net. Yep.
1: And I'm, uh, so I'm uh, Jeremy R. Welch on Twitter. And then we also have at Casa Hoddle on Twitter. Um, and you can, you know, if you have any questions on this stuff, membership at team.casa is the easiest resource hit us with your hardest questions go read the security protocol try to figure out any flaws you can hit us with all those questions i mean that's what it's there for uh and you can just google Casa Wealth security protocol and and find that it's a pdf it's really easy to read um, and that's what it's there for. So uh, dig in and let us know your questions. Fantastic. Well, look, uh, yeah, thanks
0: for the, the work you guys are doing to help uh, make people make uh, the Bitcoiners more out there more secure and uh, more educated. So uh, thanks for that and thanks for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks for having us on, man. Thanks. I hope you got some value out of listening to the perspectives from the CASA team on some of their decisions around the trade-offs that they have made and you can hopefully use that to inform your own decisions about what you want to do. So make sure you share the episode with your friends so they can learn more about it as well. And also make sure you subscribe using a podcast app. One of my favorites is Pocket Casts, which used to be a paid app and it's now free for both Android and iOS. So make sure you look that one up. I've got a bunch of cool interviews coming up with Brian Bishop, Pamela Morgan, Christopher Allen, Drew Bantel from Unchained Capital and more. So remember, the show notes and the transcript for the episodes are on my website, stefanlevera.com. That's it for me, guys. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in the Citadels.